0: You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at In Focus Church. We hope this message encourages you and leaves you feeling challenged to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven.
1: Listen, I'm glad y'all started clapping because I was this close from starting to beatbox along with that and that would have been awkward. (laughs) Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Keevan Carly. If we haven't met, I am the youth director here and I am glad and honored to be able to teach this morning. Uh, Our lead pastor, Brent Gerard, is in Manila, Philippines. Last message, I said that he's probably asleep. I can confidently say that now because he watched the last message. So he stayed up just to worship God with you guys here back at home. Because even though he's away, he's with Spiritual Family there. Uh, He's there for our Every Nation Seminary uh, where he's in his third year of that. He'll be graduating next year, I believe. So he's there for his final uh, intensive week, and so we're glad uh, and praying for him, and you can join in that as well. Uh, But if you don't know about me, I'll share a little bit. Uh, I used to run track, track and field. I ran for about six or seven years of my life, ranging from high school to college. And yes, I ran in college, but I want to dispel any idea that I was great at the sport, because I was not. I was not. I was not. But I did start to get a little bit better, uh, where when I first started off as a freshman in high school, I was not quite six feet, two inches tall like I am now, but I was getting there. And so my long legs afforded me the ability to just kind of run any kind of way and still do somewhat decent at the sport. But the further along I got... My coaches started to train me and teach me about running technique and form. We would talk about ear-to-pocket with your hands and and your knee lift, where we started to go through running mechanics, and eventually I started to run with that guy over there, Christian Collier, if you don't know him, where he was great, and the more I started to practice with him, I got better, and then I started to learn this thing about, called uh, race strategy. Well, for me, one of my main events was the 400 meter. If y'all run track, y'all know like, hey, that ain't, you don't play about that. People try to run to avoid that race. And in that race, I started to learn how important it was to start well. Now, starting well doesn't mean necessarily that you will end well, but I started to realize, man, you've got to get out of those blocks with intentionality, run with purpose. And so I, I, I would try to do that. But I I learned very quickly that when you run and get out of the blocks well, what it actually does is it positions you to run the middle of your race well, where you start to get into a a good stride, a good rhythm, a good pace, where if you can maintain that with strength and with stamina, then you're positioned to be able to finish well. Well, church, the Apostle Paul, he likened the faith journey that we're all on as followers of Jesus to that of a, a race. And he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. But the surrounding context of this verse explains that this race does not just encompass what we do for God, how we minister to others, but what Paul also emphasizes is that it, it incorporates or encompasses the ministry that God does in us as well. For us, I think that in some ways, particularly here in the West, that us as Christians, we view this race of faith typically through the lens of how we start and how we finish. We, we celebrate, we emphasize that, where we start our race and we celebrate that as we should because Scripture says that heaven also celebrates when a person surrenders their life to Jesus as their Lord and Savior and they start following Jesus. Heaven celebrates, so should we. So we emphasize the start of the race. But then also, we emphasize the end because we all want to hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant, when we get to heaven's gates. But if we don't emphasize the in between, then we're setting ourselves up for failure. We'll begin the race and run at a different pace from what we should, as though the finish line would just get to us rather than us having to get to it. Now, see, Paul did a lot for God, he ministered in a lot of places, preached the gospel raised disciples. And in all of this work that he did for God, he still emphasized holy living, explaining that from the moment that his race began, he and all Christians must live as the holy people of God as they do all that God has called them to do. And that is what brings us to the finish line. So yes, it is important for us to pursue faithfulness to the Great Commission and to utilize the platforms that God has given us to be faithful to whatever assignment that God has given us here today. But also, God is going to be glorified with or without us. So even if we fail to complete our task and our assignment, if we fail to serve in the moments and spaces where we should, God is still going to be glorified. But if we focus too much on doing the things that God wants us to do instead of being the people that God wants us to be, then we're at a loss. What I'm saying is that God is not willing to prioritize what we do for him over who we are to him, and neither should we. So our ears should perk up a little bit. Our eyes should, should narrow in and, and make sure that we're paying attention to exactly who it is that God wants us to be, because who we are precedes what we do. And we find who we are in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. It says, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God Who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, You must be holy because I am holy. See, God, as the author and the perfecter of our faith, He begins the race for us. He makes us clean, He makes us holy, He makes us pure, and He starts our race. But we play an active part in taking steps of faith to get to the finish line steps of surrender, steps in holiness. And it's our responsibility to make sure that we step with purpose and with intentionality, that we're being careful to our running technique or our form so that we can run at the pace and at the stride that he has called us to, that is a holy stride, looking different from the rest of the world around us. Pastor Brent, he taught on this passage in recent weeks as we've been walking through First and 2 Peter, and in one of his messages, he taught about the fear of the Lord, and he was emphasizing that our fear, our reverence for God, our understanding of his holiness should bring us to a place of being careful that we walk in step with him, which means that there'll be some things that we'll be afraid to say. There'll be some things that we're afraid to do, some, some thoughts that we'll be afraid to let linger in our head if we're aware of God's holiness, because we know that we're called to live in holiness as well. So Let's look at what that means. The definition of holy that we can, can write down if we're taking notes online or you're here in person is holy means pure, sinless, sacred, separate, or set apart. This describes our God, and Dr. Tony Evans, he, he presents it well. He says, God is distinct from his creation. He's set apart. He is unstained by sin and is the standard of righteousness. And although there are verses that say that God is love, and that God is sovereign, he is never described in the Bible as love, 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 or as sovereign, 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 but the angelic wings emphasize that God is holy, holy, holy. And this perfect holiness is at the heart of his other attributes, where everything about him is in a class by itself, it's set apart, and he calls His people to pursue holiness by seeking to please Him in every dimension of their lives. We're just saying about God's holiness that there is no one like him, no one beside him, no one above him. And Leviticus puts this holiness in, in perspective for us, or in particular for the people of Israel, as we're looking back in the Old Testament in chapter 11, verse 45. It says, For I, the Lord, am the one who brought you up from the land of Egypt, that I might be your God. Therefore, you must be holy because I am holy. Where well, First Peter echoes this Old Testament passage. Where uh, as, as they're looking at, at the group of people that this is written to and about, Moses is actually authoring this passage, and, and he's communicating this to the people of Israel. Where, he, As Pastor Brent spoke about it recently, he was saying that God was, was effectively saying, hey, listen, Israelites, I want you to be my people, but before I ask you to do something for me, I want you to see all that I've done for you. So God is calling them to remember the God who pursued them. The God who sent plagues that spared the Israelite people. The God who sustained them in their suffering. The God who delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Who split the sea that allowed them to walk through to safety. The God who led them through the wilderness, being faithful to promises to their ancestors. The God who provided food to satisfy their hunger and water to quench their thirst. This is the God who is revealing himself to the Israelites and saying, hey, I want you to trust me and obey me. But let me show you why I'm worthy of your obedience, why I'm worthy of your surrender. Do you recall the ways that God has worked and maneuvered in your life, proving and demonstrating that he's worthy of your trust and your worship? How God has shown his might to you, his power and his love and his compassion. Do you recount his goodness and remember it and thank him for his mercies that are new every morning and his grace that is sufficient? I think it's important that you and I make a daily habit of that because there's a correlation between what we think about God and our willingness to trust and to obey him. If we keep with our illustration of the race, there's a correlation between our awareness of how God started the race that we're on and our ability and willingness to keep at the pace that he set for us. If we forget the power of God who made us holy, then it will certainly seem impossible to live in obedience to the commands of his word. It will certainly seem impossible to persevere through the temptation before us, and holiness will seem out of reach at best, or at worst, not worth pursuing at all. We fail to see and behold the holiness of God, the one who set our pace by making us holy. We won't find the value, the worth, the importance in surrendering to his will for us. He expects us to live as holy people, walking in step with his purity that he has given us and counted to us as righteousness because of the work of Christ on the, car, on the cross as we put our faith in him, which means that our speech, our actions, our thoughts, and even our motives should be holy and pure before God. They should be sinless and set apart, pure, which brings us to a point of reflection. If you examine your life right now, do you resemble the holiness of God or do you resemble the ways of the world? If we break it down by category in the way that we interact and engage with our spouse, is there a humble submission to one another out of reverence for Christ himself? Husbands, are you loving your wife the way that Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her? That's a standard of holiness in marriage. Are we we resembling the holiness of God in the way that we parent our children? In the way that we treat those that we don't like or in the way that we treat those who don't like us? In the way that we treat those who believe different from us or vote different or the way we speak about them and those who support different organizations and ideologies? Do we start to sound like the side that we lean on more than we sound like the God who loved us enough to send Christ to die for us. See, my concern is that although we are people of God made holy by the work of the son of God, that we can embrace a cultural Christianity that will ultimately adopt the leanings and the habits and the behaviors and the thoughts and the speech and the motives of these different identities, a Southern identity, a personal preference, A conservative or liberal identity, an ethnic identity, a gender identity, a sexual orientation. We can start to lean to one thing and let it speak for us and let it lead our actions and our thoughts more than we let the word of God, more than we let the leading of his Holy Spirit. What is your standard of holiness? Is it comparing yourself to your opponents online? Is it comparing yourself to your spouse, particularly when they might slip out a word or raise their voice in a way that you're like, I at least didn't go that far. And you're just judging yourself saying, I feel like I'm a little bit better than him or her. Is that your standard of holiness? Is it comparing yourself to your coworkers or your neighbors? Because we'll always have the ability to find someone that is failing to walk in holiness a little bit more than we are. Therefore, we can feel justified in that. But our standard of holiness is God himself. So let's look at what happens when our standard of holiness is off. When we are comparing ourselves to the person we're sitting next to, the people we interact with online, the people at our job, when we're trying to compare ourselves to them instead of to God himself, when we fail to behold his holiness in a manner that should lead to carefulness in what we say, do, and think. In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, it reads, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan, put fire in it, placed incense on it, and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord. Somebody say unauthorized fire. Thank you. I want to make sure y'all are awake. This unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Then fire came from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. See, Nadab and Abihu, these are two brothers, succinctly they took a, a, an offering to the Lord to present an unauthorized fire, and this is l- described here, even though it's brief, it's articulated because there's a special context that we have to understand why all of this is important. It may seem harsh, it may seem strict, but ultimately it's pointing out the holiness of God and what it looks like when someone fails to behold his holiness, and act in our own ways because of that. As Levite priests, these sons of Aaron, the high priest, they were charged with leading Israel to be holy. And the way that they did that was, was twofold. On one hand, they presented sacrifices on behalf of the Israelites so that they could be cleansed and forgiven of their sin and made holy. But then on the other hand, as leaders, they were expected to demonstrate what holiness looks like, what faithfulness and obedience to God looks like. So these two brothers, their sin was that they offered this unauthorized fire before God, and even though it, it, it's theorized about what exactly it means, did they get coals from a place they shouldn't have gotten? Did they use a different incense from what should have been used? But the moral of the story is that they disobeyed God. It was not what God had commanded, where God had given careful instruction saying, Aaron, Moses, this is how the priests are to offer sacrifices. This is what it should look like. These are the steps. This is what they're supposed to use. And by lifting this unauthorized fire, Nadab and Abihu outskirted God's will and said, we'll do what seems right to us. They treated God's holiness as irreverent thinking that they could come up with some concoction that should be acceptable to God simply because they gave an offering, even though it was not what God had carefully instructed. For them to have been holy and revered God and beholded God's holiness would have meant that they would have carefully meditated on and written down what God had instructed, to be carefully obedient and intentionally faithful to what he had commanded. But instead, they took matters into their own hands. And I believe that you and I are prone to doing the same. I think one of the the clearest ways, if we're honest, and this is what this message is, a call to self-examination. If you're expecting some type of checklist of what to do to be holy, you're not going to get it because it doesn't exist. We will never fully be obedient and faithful to all that God has called us to. And that should free you while also challenging you to approach God in in a holy way, knowing that reality. So I believe that what you and I do, particularly when it comes to relationships, when we've got beef with somebody, we took offense to something that someone said or did to us, or maybe even we offended someone and we know it, but we don't obey Jesus' clear command to approach that person and pursue reconciliation. We don't revere God enough to say, okay, Lord, you said that the world would know your disciples by the way that they love one another. And if I've got beef with my brother or my sister, then I need to pursue love well, love for my neighbor in a way that will pursue this reconciliation by saying, hey, can we talk? Instead, what we do is we nadab dab and abihu this thing up and we try to offer something else where we'll go and gossip behind the person's back and say, let me tell you what he or she did. And we'll talk all about them, slander their name by presenting only our side of the story, and then we'll try to make an offering and say, but I'm praying for them, though. It's funny, but it's dangerous. Another sin that I believe these brothers failed to, or or committed and failed to learn and, and realize their responsibility as leaders and as people called to be holy is that they did not utilize the community around them. Where their own father was the high priest. They were to follow his instruction, his example. And instead of going to their father and saying, hey, dad, check it out. We want to make this offering and we're thinking about using this. How does that sound to you? Instead of utilizing this community, they took matters into their own hands. And I think you and I do the same. That although we are in a church With pastors and elders and deacons and and leaders who should have influence in our lives, that we should approach and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Does this honor God? I think it does, but I feel like it's actually what I want. And I just want to make sure, hey, uh, is this line up with Scripture and God's will for me? Instead of us approaching God's spiritual family in the way that he ordained it and set it up, We take matters into our own hands as though we never fail to hear God clearly, as though we are not tempted to do things based on what will satisfy us. We fail to use the community that God has given us. We fail to approach our brother and sister and say, I've got some sin that I'm struggling with. And James wrote that I should confess my sin that I might be healed. So let me run to you instead of waiting on you to ask me how things are going. We commit the same sin as Nadab and Abihu. Sure, this is the Old Testament, and we don't lift sacrifices like this anymore. But if we're not careful to read and write down and meditate on what God instructs for us as his people, that we may walk in the holiness that he has provided for us through the sacrifice of his son, then we too can offer a God half obedience by doing what seems and feels right, even though it dishonors him. So let's look at another scenario. In the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, it says, Then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who was enthroned between the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God, Ahio walked in front of the ark, and David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs, and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark of God. And the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. This is another difficult passage that if you look at it like I did upon first reading it, and I talked to to Emerson about it, who recently taught about the uh, uh, equip class on the old Testament, it's easy to look at this and say, God, that's overkill. It's too harsh. And I think it depends on our approach to his holiness and our understanding of it. See this arc was holy. It was sacred. And God had given clear instruction in the book of Exodus of how it was to be built, how it was to be carried, how it was to be approached and handled, where God instructed that there be rods placed on each corner of the ark so that it could be held by the rod instead of being touched. And God clearly explained, hey, if it's touched, it will die. Because this ark was special. It wasn't just a normal piece of furniture. It was kind of box-shaped, but it carried the stones with the Ten Commandments. and, And on top of it was this thing called the mercy seat, where it's the place where God would meet with Moses. And so it carried God's presence. It was symbolic of God's presence. And therefore, to touch it would have been like to approach the holiness of God, which is impossible for us as sinners. So God had a desire, despite him being holy and set apart and being far off, God still had a desire to be present and near to his people. And so he utilized this ark to say, hey, I'm here with you, but you still got to approach me carefully. Follow the instructions that's been given. So here in 2 Samuel, Uzzah would have known this. He would have been raised, he was a priest who was probably carrying this and would have known the history and the instruction. But in this moment where the ark started to fall, he probably had even a good intention of saying, I don't want this to hit the ground and get dirty and defiled. This is holy, but this ground is not holy. So let me support it and make sure it doesn't fall. But despite this good intention, the sin of Uzzah was that he thought that his hands were holier than the ground. He thought that he, as a sinful man, could do a better job at protecting God in his presence than God himself. The sin of Uzzah. One commentary explains it. The harshness of the Lord's discipline must be seen in the light of his absolute holiness, which requires that sacred tasks be done in a sacred manner. Meaning that if he had a right view of God's holiness, then he also would have had right view of his sinfulness. And he would have viewed the delicacy of the ark with the right view. He, even as a priest, must not touch it. See, the holiness of God distinguishes himself even from us. Which means that even in our best attempts to make ourselves holy, we need to be cleansed by God himself, purified. And in the Old Testament, God did that through the priests, through the sacrificial system, but then also giving them instructions of what holy living looked like. And for us today, it's through Jesus' one and only sacrifice and us being faithful to all that he's called us to in Scripture. But we end up committing the same sin as other. I believe that We defend God or things that God cares about in ungodly ways resulting in the same danger. How many of of you know of people, maybe yourself, if you're honest, that get behind a keyboard or a picket sign and proclaim things of God in ways that don't reflect God at all? That we talk a good game by saying that this is what God cares for while failing to demonstrate the love of God. And we're prone to confuse this failure to love as tough love or slap a label on it that we're just speaking truth. But God is looking at us like the church in Revelation saying, you've departed from your first love. Because Jesus said the greatest two commandments are love for God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So they should be the primary motive. Behind the way that we interact with people, behind the way that we call out truth in someone's life, behind the motive in which we engage with people that we don't like, the way that we share the gospel, the way that we share the good news, the way that we serve people should be from a motive of love and not anything else. What happens when we fail to behold the holiness of God, our Redeemer? We prioritize doing for God over being who God called and redeemed us to be. When we fail to remember his goodness and righteousness, we start to view his instructions in ways as out of reach or unattainable or non-important. And we create other standards of holiness by which we compare ourselves. So imagine with me an alternative. What, what could it look like if we rightly behold God's holiness, if our standard of holiness is where it should be, not comparing ourselves to anyone else other than God himself, I think that when we rightly behold the holiness of God, it looks like Psalm 139, where in verse 24, David wrote, point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. God, you have free reign. You're sovereign. You are the author and the perfecter of my faith. So, Lord, in your holiness, show me whatever it is in this life of mine, whatever my thoughts are that I let linger, whatever comes out of my mouth, whatever action I have, whatever motive of my heart, point out anything, whatever disposition, whatever personality trait that I tend to use as an excuse because I get angry easily. That ultimately causes me to fail to love you well. Point it out and this is the daily cry of our hearts we are intentional to continue our race well instead of getting stuck at the start instead of just hoping for a good end we're positioned to run at the pace that god has called us to when we view jesus's instruction to take up our cross daily instead of some some empty allegory or some Cool illustration. We approach it with reverence and say, Jesus, just as you died on the cross because you took sin upon yourself, you became sin and it had to die. God, I will take up my cross and I want you to show me whatever it is that needs to be killed today. My pride, my impatience. God, whatever thoughts that I have that really are irreverent of your holiness, but I let it slide because. It's just what guys do because it's the ways of the world because all my friends do it because my coworkers are worse than me. Whatever these areas are, God show me, cleanse me, forgive me and help me to walk in your ways. We do this because God doesn't just want us to start our race, but he wants us to complete it. And we complete it by taking intentional steps, pursuing faithfulness to him. As a sprinter, if you imagine a race where maybe you're watching the Olympics and you've seen the videos where someone will start a race, but an injury will ultimately keep them from finishing it, maybe at least finishing it the way that, or at best finishing it the way that they wanted it to, but they'll still try to, to, to crawl across the finish line. I've seen a video where a father came out on the track to help his son cross the finish line, but have you ever seen a race where someone breaks out of the blocks, they start their race with intentionality, with intensity, and they're sprinting at a world record pace, but then all of a sudden they just stop because they're tired. Or maybe they don't stop, but they start slowing down and running at a different pace as though that 400 meter sprint has actually turned into a 5K. And now they're just trotting around the track. They would be an embarrassment for themselves and their own name, but also for the country that they represent and their team and their coaches. For you and I, if God has called us out of the blacks, He started our race in holiness as the author and perfecter of our faith, and we start running at a pace more like the world, we are poorly representing His name. We're to reflect His goodness while pointing to His greatness, and instead of doing that with holy living, we start to look more like the world representing a different culture, representing a different organization, a different belief that ultimately Jesus did not die for us to live up to. Instead, we should embrace accountability and do what James said to confess our sins to one another, that we may be healed, that we should run to someone and confess our struggles Instead of waiting, we shouldn't settle for the lame excuse that God just hasn't delivered me from that, but instead be begging and pleading for the transforming work of the Holy Spirit within us out of reverence for God because it's not that we're afraid of God, but we're afraid of doing things or saying things or letting thoughts linger in our mind or having motives that would dishonor him. We run to Jesus just as we just sang. This is what I desire for us. Well, last week, Pastor Bomi she said that God's got some great things in store for us as corporately as a church, but then even personally within our lives. But I believe that that she would agree also that as we're waiting, we're not twiddling our thumbs and just opening our hands to receive a blessing, but that we're lifting our hands and surrender. Thank God, whatever it is that you want to do in me, do it. I don't want to be so focused. And consumed by doing for you to where I failed to see what you want to do in me. So God, have your way. And I believe that if we approach God with this right viewing of his holiness and the standard that he calls us to, we'll be in the middle of our race running at the pace that he's called us to. But there's actually benefits to that. See, when we rightly understand God's holy standard, his glory becomes more clear to us and so does his presence when we truly can wrap our brains around the holiness of God, not that we'll ever perfectly be able to do it because the creation will never be able to fully understand the creator. But as we open this word, we start to see him more clearly. We understand him within more intimate ways. We're able to trust him more faithfully. And when we rightly behold his holiness, we ultimately have two choices. We can walk away in self-pity because we're so overwhelmed by our own sin. And we know that we don't deserve the nearness of God. And although that is true, the more that we see him, we also see, we don't just see the holiness, but we see the love and we see the sovereignty, the love that where he should have stiff formed us, he actually offered his hand and said, I want you close. I want it so bad that I will give my only begotten son so that those who believe in him can have eternal life this clearer perspective helps us rightly recognize that this God should have nothing to do with us but he chose to pursue us and to be near to us not because we earned it not because there was something that we did that made him go oh I'm impressed with that but simply out of his deep love for us See how glorious our God is. Do you see how holy He is and how worthy He is of our trust and our obedience and our reverence and our surrender? Do you see the presence of the one who gave His Holy Spirit to dwell among us? Where again, in the Old Testament, there's the sacrificial system in the New Testament, Jesus was the one and for all sacrifice where those who trust him as Lord and Savior are adopted as sons and daughters, but that Jesus himself didn't leave us empty-handed, but he gave us his Holy Spirit to empower us to live the life of holiness that he has called us to. This should bring us to a deeper surrender, a deeper moment of reflection, a deeper abiding in him as we lift our word, daily pursuing him with reverence and with eagerness to die. Isn't that ironic? God, today, what is it that you wanna do in me? Yes, I wanna do for you, but first do in me, Lord, that all the glory and the honor would be given to you, that I won't just look for the big ways that I can serve you, but that as you expose my impatience towards my family, I'll surrender even that. That as you expose my thoughts about people, even though I smile in their face, that I'll recognize my hypocrisy. That I might feel like I'm doing decent enough because I'm at least not saying some things, but God, that I want total holiness for your namesake. And God, I'm asking you to even purify my mind and my thoughts, purify my motives, God. That I might put your love on display in the genuine way that you do for me this echoes what we say here at in focus who you are precedes what you do if we recognize who we are who god has made us as holy people and we run with vigor and zeal and passion for the glory of our god who loves us and who we love then as we keep at that pace being faithful to what he's called us to then doing for him will be even sweeter. It'll bring even more zeal, even more delight because of the intimacy that we carry with him in the process. So now cause the moment of response. If you have not been made holy, I need you to understand that there is nothing that you can do to cleanse yourself. It's not, well, let me stop this particular sin It's not, well, let me go to church more. It's not, well, let me read my Bible more or pray more. Although God desires all of that, it's not what makes you holy. It's not the sacrifice that Nadab and Abihu lifted to God that was holy, but it was the obedience to the holy ways that God had already instructed for them. It was what God did in the sacrifice. It's what God did in the sacrifice of Jesus that makes us holy. As we surrender ourselves to him, That if you're a sinner and you're responding to this gospel message right now, that you cry out to God, I'm a sinner in need of a savior, using whatever vocabulary you know to use, that you confess the sin in your life, that you ask him to cleanse you of it, ask him for forgiveness, but that you repent, that that you turn away from your sin while asking him to help you to move in the direction that he has for you. And if you earnestly cry from out that cry out from that place, believing with your heart and confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord and Savior, then you're saved. But if you're someone who in this moment, these moments of reflection, you're being honest with yourself, that maybe you wanted just a a checklist to say, all right, do this, don't do that. You're aware of some some predispositions that you have, some some thoughts and inclinations you're maybe aware that you don't spend enough time in the word to even discover his will for you, what your relationship should look like, what a holy and pure motive should be. And now's your moment to respond. And I'll be honest with you, this message was difficult because I I, I like a checklist. And there's a part of me that desired to be able to leave here and have people going, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I've got something to do. But the emphasis is not on the doing. Your response is receptivity to be who God has called you to be as holy people. Be holy. You pursue that by examining yourself and realizing all the ways that you're not so that you can surrender to him daily. Daily repentance. Daily confession. Daily repentance. Daily asking for grace daily utilizing community and it seems mundane and it seems boring compared to all the things that we could do for him ministering to others but when we actually say God do your ministry in me he experienced the closeness that he intended the closeness that he sent his spirit for that as we be holy people we can do what he's called us to do and experience the joy that is only available as his sons and daughters because of what Christ has did as he started our race set the pace for us to continue so that one day we'll hear well done my good and faithful servant let's pray Heavenly Father Lord I believe that even right now God that this is a moment for us to respond. I don't want to fill it with my words, but God, as you're ministering to the hearts of your people, God, it's easy that we could walk out this morning and pretend like we didn't hear a thing. That if there's people in here who have hidden sin in their lives that they haven't confessed to anyone, they might seem holy, God. believe that you're ministering now that you're doing some conviction some convicting work through your spirit god to bring to light the darkness in our hearts and god i ask that you will bring us to this place of response for your namesake your glory God as you've shown yourself worthy because we can look back to the Old Testament and see all that you did for Israel we can look to the New Testament and see all that you did in your sacrifice and your establishing of the church but God we're benefactors here today and you desire that we embrace this spiritual family you desire that we respond and surrender moment by moment and day by day for your glory taking up our cross and dying, and I'm asking you to reveal to us, God, where we need to do that starting today. I'm asking that you empower us to actually examine ourselves with honesty and with reverence that you will help us to behold your beauty and your holiness, God, because you're worthy. And God, that you will bring us and sustain us in this race to keep the pace that you've set for us. God, in your glory, for your namesake, in Jesus' name.
0: Thank you for listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at In Focus Church.